Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Vienna's verdict, Austria enters full lockdown and mandates COVID jabs. Stars speak out, top players demand answers from China over missing tennis ace Pong Shui. And Moody's misstep, farmers celebrate after a government U-turn on agriculture reforms. It's Friday, let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move as always. And as you heard there, it's fourth wave of fears that command our attention today. Austria becomes the first European nation to re-enter full lockdown and announce mandatory vaccinations. We began the year hoping lockdowns were a thing of the past. This clearly isn't over. And it's this worsening health picture driving sentiment across global markets today. Investors pairing stock market risk. The S&P set to pull back from record highs a touch in Europe shares were weaker too with growth sensitive stocks like banks underperforming in particular as you would expect we've also got some softness across the oil price complex global bond yields are also lower as well which I think makes sense central banks have to remain cautious in the face of uncertainty and growth related uncertainty in particular the European Central Bank head Christine Lagarde insisting again today that rate hikes are completely off the table in 2022 so not this year next year as well the Hang Seng is hanging heavy over in Asia after a 10% drop in Alibaba stocks. As we said yesterday, the Chinese internet giant posted weaker earnings than expected and warned of the effects of slowing Chinese growth. In the meantime, Japan still trying to jumpstart its economy. The government rolling out its latest pandemic aid plan, a record $490 billion worth of stimulus, a sharp contrast to other major economies that are, of course, beginning to pull back on that financial aid. The bottom line, the COVID crisis hasn't finished with us yet. And that's where we begin today's drivers. Desperate measures for desperate times, perhaps. Austria turning to brand new tools as it grapples with record COVID infections. The country's going back into full national lockdown as a fourth virus wave sweeps Europe. But it's also introducing a vaccine mandate, the first EU nation to do so. Jim Bitterman joins us now on this story. Jim, great to have you with us. They're blaming the fact that not enough people are vaccinated for the current situation too. Walk us through what we're seeing and the reaction. Well, this is apparently it, Julia. The, the amount of vaccinations is a problem, apparently, in both uh, Austria and in neighboring Germany. Uh, in fact, in Austria, they are locking down again as of Monday for 10 days, uh, and that can be extended for another 10 days if the numbers don't go the right way. They've already been locked down uh, for the unvaccinated uh, this week. So uh, it is a, a really extreme measure for the Austrians. Uh, but even more extreme is this idea that vaccination would become mandatory. Mandatory. It's the first European country to make uh, vaccinations mandatory. Here is the Austrian Chancellor Alexander Schallenberg. We have decided now to initiate a nationwide compulsory vaccination very quickly. This is planned to apply starting February the 1st, 2022. Sustainably increasing vaccination rates, and I think we are all agreed on this, is our only way to get out of this vicious circle of virus waves and lockdown discussions once and for all. We don't want a fifth wave. We don't want a sixth wave. 
And Julia, in neighboring uh, Germany, in fact, they are already locking down some of the uh, federal states uh, for the unvaccinated. There's also word out today that, in fact, Bavaria will close down all of its Christmas markets. Of course, that's a pretty big deal in Germany. Uh, and the Germans are prepared to take further uh, action if necessary. All of this begs the question, why? Why Germany and why Austria? Uh, basically, it's because these two countries, along with Switzerland, are the top three countries uh, in Europe in terms of the number of people not vaccinated. Uh, their percentages of vaccinations uh, are, in fact, uh, smaller than every other country in Europe. And as a consequence, uh, at least according to officials and experts, that's the cause for their sudden spikes in the number of infections. Really? And that's why Austria is saying we're going to implement a vaccine mandate. What happens if... Indeed, they are allowed to lift the lockdown on December 13th at midnight, I believe, for the unvaccinated. What happens if you're not vaccinated as of December 14th and you're still not vaccinated as of February the 1st when that vaccine mandate kicks in, Jim? And how are they going to enforce it for those that are still unwilling to to get the vaccine shot? Well, it's not very clear exactly what the punishment might be for mm. not being vaccinated. Uh, forced vaccinations and that sort of thing aren't yet being talked about. But uh, in fact, uh, the police will definitely be out to patrol these things. As of Monday, they'll be out patrolling uh, to make sure that the lockdown is respected. So, in fact, uh, it will be enforced. It's just a question of exactly how and what the punishment might be. Some of the details are just being worked out. And I think, you know, they just came to this decision today. So uh, I think the government's still grappling with exactly how they're going to enforce it and how draconian they can be in enforcing it. Julia? Yeah, to be determined. Jim, great to have you with us. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Yeah. Jim Bitterman yeah. there. The United Nations calling on China to provide proof of Peng Shui's well-being. The Chinese tennis star has not been seen since she alleged that the country's former vice premier coerced her into having sex. Now the head of the Women's Tennis Association is threatening to pull its tournaments out of China. Will Ripley has the latest. Silenced and disappeared for speaking out. Peng Shui. That's what many fear is happening to Peng Shui. The 35-year-old, one of the top-ranked doubles players in the world, accusing China's 75-year-old former vice premier of coercing her into having sex. Peng's shocking claim, erased within 30 minutes from Chinese social media. That was more than two weeks ago. Peng vanished from public view ever since. Her Weibo account, with more than half a million followers, blocked. The tennis world outraged. Serena Williams tweeting she's devastated, shocked, saying this must be investigated. On Wednesday, an email claiming to be from Pung released by a state-owned broadcaster. The email retracts her allegations, saying, I'm not missing, nor am I unsafe. I've just been resting at home and everything is fine. The man who received the email, the head of the Women's Tennis Association, is not convinced. For us to see an email um, that basically uh, denied what that happened and said it didn't um, and that all is great, um, I'm just struggling uh, to, to agree to that and, and don't believe that's the truth at all. The WTA is demanding proof Pung is okay, a probe into her allegations, and says it is prepared to pull out of China, potentially losing a lucrative 10-year deal. There's too many times in our world today when we get into issues like this that we let business, politics, money dictate uh, what's right and what's wrong. 
The fury comes just weeks before another high-dollar event, the Beijing Winter Olympics. Peng, a three-time Olympian, the IOC, staying out of it. Experience shows that quiet diplomacy offers the best opportunity to find a solution. The WTA have been quite bold compared to other organizations that have interests in China. They've really come out swinging. China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs refusing to comment. This is not a foreign affairs matter. U.S. President Joe Biden is considering a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Games. The Chinese patriarchy has long been accused of suppressing the rights of women and minorities. Government censors cutting off CNN's coverage of Peng Shui's disappearance. But China cannot censor away the outrage and growing demands for answers. Will Ripley, CNN, Taipei. And CNN World Sports' Alex Thomas joins us now. Alex, this is exactly what you and I talked about yesterday. Will the WTA step up and say, look, we'll pull out of this contract if we don't hear more? Their voice is one thing. Some of the biggest tennis stars in the world now stepping up and saying, we need answers. And to the point that was made in that little um, video there, it is a cloud over the upcoming Winter Olympics. We have to be clear. It is, and the voices just keep growing stronger and stronger. Serena Williams mentioned in Will Ripley's report, Andy Murray, another leading tennis player who's famous for sticking up for the women's game, another to add his voice. But this goes beyond tennis, beyond even sport. Gerard Piquet, the men's football World Cup winner uh, from 2010, adding his voice, even the United Nations getting involved, and the Germany Olympic team, which is significant, ahead of those Winter Olympics in Beijing at the start of February, as you say. And what comes out of all of this is how horribly weak that International Olympic Committee response is. Not saying anything for an organisation that bangs on about the purity of its Olympic charter so much, trying to make the world a better place through sport. You don't make the world a better place by refusing to stand up for a woman silenced by one party state. Well said. Alex Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Farmers victory. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi announcing that a raft of controversial laws deregulating agriculture will be, quote, repealed. This coming after a year of protests, some of the largest India has ever seen. Vedika Sood is live in New Delhi with the latest for us. Vedika, great to have you with us too. Proximity to a 2022 election uh, perhaps surely has something to do with this as well. But why were these reforms so controversial? Explain what happened here and why the government's U-turn now. Good to be with you, Julia. Well, according to political analysts, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has elections on his mind. Remember, next year, two very important states will be going to elections. That's Punjab and also Uttar Pradesh. Now, both these states have a significant population of farmers. And that's why, according to analysts, Narendra Modi is reaching out to farmers just ahead of those elections, trying to tell them that, all right, we're taking a step back. It's very rare, actually, when you see the Modi dispensation withdrawing uh, a reform that they've introduced last September, but it's been over a year, almost a year, that these uh, protesters have been in and around Delhi protesting against these three controversial agricultural laws. Indian Prime Minister announced uh, taking back these laws this morning and he appealed to the farmers to go home. Let's listen in. Today, I'm requesting all of our protesting farmers. Today is the holy day of Guru Pradab Festival. Please return to your homes. Return to your farms, return to your families. Let's start a new beginning. 
Farmer union leaders have said they're not going home anytime soon. They want these three laws, Julia, to be repealed officially in Parliament. They're also wanting a legal assurance on MSP, the minimum support price for agricultural products from the government. They want that assurance from the government at this point. Just quickly answering the second part of your question. Well, now, the Indian government feels that these laws will help liberalize the agricultural sector, modernize it. But the Indian farmers feel that too much power is being given to corporate sectors and this could help, uh, in fact, make these uh, corporates and encourage them to manipulate the prices, which in turn could hurt their income. These people, men and women, have been out on the roads, on highways, Julia, for almost a year. They've braved the cold, the pandemic, the heat. And now while they see this as a victory, they just want to wait and watch till these bills are officially repealed in Parliament before they go home. They've made that amply clear, Julia. Yeah, critical. The balance of power at all levels. Vedekasud, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A jury in Wisconsin enters its fourth day of deliberations today in the homicide trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse shot and killed two people and wounded a third during unrest last year in the city of Kenosha. The defense has asked for a mistrial to be declared because of the prosecution's line of questioning and low-quality video shown during the trial. The judge has not yet ruled on the motions. In Western Canada, rescue workers are still searching for dozens of people stranded after heavy rain and flooding. Officials say things are slowly improving as the water begins to recede. But they warn the situation remains critical and even more rain is expected next week. Japanese baseball star Shohei Otani has been named the most valuable player in Major League's Baseball American League. The 27-year-old had a dominant season for the LA Angels both as a pitcher and a hitter. Fans in Japan are celebrating Otani's success, with the Prime Minister saying it gave him pride as a Japanese citizen. Still to come here on First Move, the U.S. oil industry criticizes the president's push to investigate prices. We speak to the head of the American Petroleum Institute. And green is the new black, a sustainable fashion pioneer on cleaning up the industry and beyond. Stay with us. That's all coming up. Welcome back to First Move. Global growth concerns weighing on U.S. market sentiment this Friday as European COVID cases soar and Australia goes back. Austria, my apologies, goes back into lockdown. But tech still set to rise to fresh records amid optimism that firms can innovate their way out of the supply chain shortages that are pressuring profits. Ford and Global Foundries announcing a partnership on Thursday intended to boost production of precious chips across the auto industry. Apple benefiting from auto innovation talk too. A Bloomberg report saying it's pushing ahead with plans to develop a fully self-driving car. Tech analyst Dan Ives, a frequent guest on this show, now saying some $5 trillion in spending are up for grabs in the electric vehicle space. He says Tesla will grab only half of that with plenty of opportunity for the others to benefit too. $5 trillion. Oil prices firmly lower this morning, but still near seven-year highs after shooting up this fall, which is bad news for the American consumer, the global consumer. Let's be clear. The White House working on several fronts to keep a lid on prices. On Thursday, it asked nations, including China, to tap into their strategic reserves. The president also pushed for a probe into possible collusion behind high prices at the pump. But the U.S. oil industry dismissed the efforts as, quote, a distraction. And joining us now is Mike Summers, CEO of the American Petroleum Institute, the U.S.'s biggest oil and gas lobby group. Great to have you with us, Mike, on the show. A distraction 
A distraction from what? What do you think the U.S. government's doing here? Julia, great to be with you. Uh, I do think it is a distraction. Uh, when you think about the fact that this administration started 11 months ago talking about what they wanted to do to put a cut uh, into the American oil industry by shutting down the Keystone XL pipeline, by uh, shutting off uh, permitting and leasing on federal lands, and by shutting down the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge as a source of oil as well. Uh, this administration from the very beginning has been saying they don't want domestic oil production in the United States. And so the distraction that they're putting forward now, this FTC uh, investigation, uh, we think uh, is a distraction from the policies that they themselves have put into place. Uh, this is what administrations do when uh, they've it pursued policies that are cutting back on American energy innovation. Uh, and we think that what they really should be focused on is how we get American production back online, which will, which will benefit American consumers and the world as well. So you're saying the U.S. government's directly responsible for the high prices that U.S. consumers in particular are facing today? Well, there are, of course, very many factors here. But uh, certainly when an administration has put a focus on uh, ensuring that the American uh, oil and gas industry isn't producing, uh, and doing everything they can to stop production in the United States, that certainly is going to be a factor weighing on American oil companies' uh, desires to continue domestic production. So it's something that we're watching and something that we want to continue to engage the administration on. In fact, just this week, there was a lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico, the first lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico. And that lease sale only occurred because a trial judge in uh, the state of Louisiana said that, that it had to occur. And the administration, uh, instead of uh, encouraging that development in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, was disappointed that they had to pursue this lease sale. So when those are the kind of signals given to American producers, you can only imagine what the response is going to be, a, a lack of investment and higher prices for American and world consumers. You know, it's interesting. What I hear from, particularly from the money management industry, is that they're under pressure, so they're not giving loans and money to the shale industry. Um, banks are obviously very focused on meeting ESG targets and they're afraid of so-called stranded assets. So they're also pulling back on monies to the oil and the gas sector, the energy sector. And there's quite a lot of alarm coming from them that we are going through a transition. And even if they believe in that transition, and you can debate that um, from your position too, we're doing it too quickly. We're not creating a bridge to utilize oil and gas that we need in terms of energy in order to buy us time to invest in a renewable future. And that will mean higher prices in the short term. Mike, Mike, do you agree with that premise that we could see significantly higher prices in the short term? And if so, how high? What is the oil and gas sector telling you based on how they're not investing? Julia, it's a great question and a huge concern because the International Energy Agency actually suggests that we need to be investing about $500 billion uh, in new investment every single year into the oil and gas sector to maintain what we expect is going to be future growth and need for oil and gas. And those numbers just aren't measuring up. Uh, it's probably about, it's under $300 billion uh, for this last year in terms of the investment that is going to be needed. And what that means is that consumer prices are gonna continue to go up. We all know that there is an energy transition going on, but we also have to keep in mind that we need to keep uh, consumer prices low or that transition is only going to slow down. So uh, 
we think that the, the United States should continue to be the world leader in oil and gas production because we know, based on statistics, that this is the place where oil and gas is produced in the most environmentally responsible way. And so we think that uh, it is better for the world to be getting oil and gas from the United States because we know that the world is going to continue to demand oil and gas. In fact, that same agency, the International Energy Agency, suggests that even if every country meets their goals under the Paris Climate Accord, almost 50% of the world's energy is going to still come from oil and gas in 2040. So we know that the world's going to consume and need oil and gas. The question is where it's going to come from. And we think it should come from the United States, which has a stable government, and uh, we produce oil and gas in the most environmentally responsible way. Rob, and there is lines the key. Mike, there will be people watching this saying, you will say anything and do anything to protect the interests of the sector. The IMF is saying that $11 million a minute goes to subsidise oil and gas. Uh, you guys are getting enough and we're in a period now of transition where even as the American Petroleum Institute, you have to recognise that the next 10 years are going to be materially different from the last 100 years. Do you accept that? And are you best protecting the interest of your members in terms of that transition? by talking to them about investing in alternative assets today, even if we have to protect the interests of utilising oil and gas, at least in the short term. Mike, are you ready for the next 10 years? Is the industry ready? Because I think as far as consumers are concerned, at least in the short term, eyes are on a renewable future. Well, there's no question that uh, in the future, uh, uh, American consumers, world consumers are going to be demanding more renewables. At the same time, you're going to need oil and gas to back those renewables up. Uh, and particularly from the natural gas perspective, you need natural gas to back up windmills and, and solar when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. So we're going to continue to have to invest in these resources, even if more renewables come online. There is no industry that is investing more in new renewable technology than the oil and gas industry. And uh, in, in addition to that, uh, the American Petroleum Institute has a plan called the Climate Action Framework uh, that addresses what we need to do to meet the needs of a changing climate. And that includes, by the way, an endorsement of a federal price on carbon in the United States. So we're working with lawmakers now to address what that energy future is going to look like, because we know uh, that consumers are going to be demanding both oil and gas and more renewables within the power sector. But we also have to keep in mind that world population is expected to go up significantly by 2050, by almost 2 billion people. And they're going to be demanding more energy, not less. And most of that energy is going to continue to come from oil and gas. We think it should come from the United States. And that's what we're advancing here uh, with our climate policies. Mike, and very quickly, um to go and circle back to where we began, the idea that the oil and gas industry is in some way colluding to raise prices to benefit themselves at this moment is your message to the to US president on that. That's rubbish. Well, it's an absurd accusation. And every time we have uh, gone through an investigation like this, and by the way, they've done investigations like this since World War One. It has been proven that this is a supply and demand imbalance, not some kind of imbalance that has occurred as a consequence of collusion. So I think the administration, instead of focusing on asking OPEC to produce more oil, uh, instead of uh, doing needless investigations, 
They should be working with the oil and gas industry on ways that we can produce more oil in the United States and not be putting a wet blanket on development in this country. This show is all about balancing so far, the delicate balancing act. Mike, it's always great to get your insights. Thank you. Mike Summers, CEO of the American Thanks, Petroleum Institute. We'll speak again soon. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on the final trading day of the week. Blue chips, the worst performers with the Dow currently on track for a losing week. But tech in record territory and high drama on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives as members vote on President Biden's massive Build Back Better stimulus plan. The price tag for the spending bill, $1.7 trillion. The bill is expected to pass, but then it faces a real tough ride in the Senate. Swing vote. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin still says he's not on board with the price tag. In the meantime, another volatile session for crypto and specifically Bitcoin, the leading cryptocurrency bouncing 2% in recent trading after falling close to bear market territory earlier this week. Bitcoin losing ground for much of the week. Some of the reasons given, well, fears about a China crackdown on Bitcoin mining, an ongoing crackdown, as well as U.S. tax concerns. You can pick. Speaking of crypto moves, check out this one by Crypto.com, one of the world's largest crypto exchanges. And who has Matt Damon as the new face of the company? Crypto.com has just inked a reported $700 million deal to rename the iconic sports arena, the Staples Center in Los Angeles. Perhaps it actually costs a little less in reality since the company's own coin, CRO, surged about 30% since the agreement was announced. And joining us now, the CEO of Crypto.com, Chris Mazalik. Great to have you on the show, Chris. Um, this is one way to grab people's attention. Did you really pay $700 million for the naming rights for this? Thanks for having it. Well, this is a 20-year commitment, right? So we take a very long-term view, um, and we think the future is bright for this industry. We felt very comfortable with making it, uh, given how iconic this venue is. And it certainly did put us on the map um, in the United States, which is our largest market today. So it does say something about your confidence, one, about this industry, but also about your business. To your point, this is a a 20-year deal. Yes, you know, if, uh, uh, we've grown tremendously this year. The company is now five years old. We've, we've, um, we've got about 3,000 employees globally. Um, the revenues grew over 20x this year alone. Uh, it's a profitable business, so we feel um, it's the right moment to, um, to kind of level up the exposure for our brand. You know, it's a trusted, regulated, secure platform, and people just love our products. So we think the moment is right. Ooh, there was a lot in there. Just for my audience who may not be familiar with what crypto.com is, we'll come back to the financials. Um, and you are a private company, of course, so that is exciting to me. Um, what does crypto.com offer? Well, this is the best place um, to buy and sell cryptocurrency. We also operate the uh, world's largest um, Visa crypto card program where you can spend crypto at 70 million merchant locations. And we also have um, a suite of products for professional traders, um, including a, um, a fully-fledged exchange. So it's an entire ecosystem, really. And our approach is to serve all customers, you know, from, from people who are just crypto curious all the way to professional traders. All you need to do is go to crypto.com and that's it. I mean, I was looking at CoinMarket.cap just to get a sense of the size. I believe you're the ninth largest exchange by volume. Coinbase, 
the biggest, $2.2 billion worth of revenues in the second quarter. Can you give me any sense of how you compare? Because you just said you're growing at around 20% in terms of volumes. You are profitable, which is a good sign when you're spending this kind of money on advertising. But what else can you tell me about users, numbers, revenues that you're generating at this stage? Right. So um, a year ago, we were at about 2-3% of Coinbase uh, quarterly revenues. In right. Q2, we did a, a, about a quarter, uh, so a little over half a billion in quarterly revenue. So it's already a sizable business. And we've continued with a very strong momentum uh, throughout the year. So we expect Q4 to be our record quarter. Wow. Can you sustain that kind of growth? Well, you know, um, the market momentum obviously is in our favor. You've seen Bitcoin hitting uh, all-time high, uh, Simpro Ethereum, uh, just recently, right? So it's, um, it all depends on how the market performs. Uh, as you know, uh, crypto trading platforms' revenues really uh, fluctuate quite a bit. Uh, but we are very bullish on the industry. We see a lot of people coming in. Uh, we grew the, the industry from about 100 million users in the beginning of the year to almost 300 now. We think it's going to hit a billion users globally next year. So it's, it's, it's an ex- incredibly exciting time for the industry. And we think that the fact that we renamed one of the most iconic uh, venues in the world to, to Crypto.com Arena, it, this is the moment where it hits mainstream. Yeah, it's just about getting the message out there, I think, and getting people familiar with the concept of, of crypto, which is why I guess you choose a sports arena, because it's something that so many people um, watch and see as part of their daily lives. Um, you were just saying something there about not only the growth in what you're seeing, but also if you're trying to get more awareness, I think regulation is is very important too. And I know you're coming to us, I believe, from Hong Kong. Your HQ is in Singapore, even right. if you have offices around the world. What is it about being in Singapore that allows you to build and do what you've done that perhaps you wouldn't be able to do, for example, in the United States or somewhere else? You know, today it's a, it's a global business. Uh, US is our largest market. You know, about one third is uh, coming from Europe and the rest of the world mm-hmm. is, uh, covers the rest. Um, I would say Singapore is uh, pretty good uh, uh, and, and fairly new laws uh, that govern digital assets. And it, um, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic location uh, to, to run and build a uh, global business from. Um, but the way we operate, we do have local subsidiaries in all the key markets. You know, we, uh, we're licensed, we're, we have a European uh, e-money license, we're licensed in Australia, um, we've got money transfer license in the US. And there's a huge effort to basically uh, secure more licenses in every major market. Mm. Very quickly, because I have about 30 seconds. How correlated yes. are your revenues and activity to the price of crypto? So when Bitcoin, for example, goes up, does it become a hive of activity? When Bitcoin goes down, there's a chilling effect. How correlated? It's, uh, it's heavily correlated today. Mm. Uh, but as we expand uh, into different use cases, other than uh, than trading, like payments or even blockchain gaming, uh, over the long term, you will see less of this correlation. Yeah, diversification key. Chris, great to chat to you. Absolutely. Stay in touch, please. <laughs> Founder and CEO Thanks of Crypto.com so there. Thank you. Cheers. All right, coming up on First Move, how can fashion brands do their bit to protect the planet? Livia Fur, the founder of EcoAge, joins us with some answers. That's next. 
So excited to show you all the coach purses that I bought from Dumpster Diving Mama. As you can see, they're all slashed, which is coach's policy. This is what they do with unwanted merchandise. Sustainability is more important to consumers, investors, and the planet than ever before. But as you can see, fashion brands are still destroying or even burning unwanted merchandise. And my next guest, Livia Firth, is leading the charge for change in the fashion industry. Her company, EcoAge, helps businesses reduce their environmental impact, something they're in dire need of. A recent report called the Great Green Washing Machine highlighted that fashion brands are failing to look at the social justice side of sustainability, that sustainability has become an elitist concept, ignoring the global south, and that right now there's not a single brand that is measuring sustainability correctly. Olivia Firth, the founder and creative director of EcoAge, joins us now. Olivia, fantastic to have you on the show. I just want to mention that Coach that was shown there in that clip did apologise afterwards and said they would stop doing this. But from your experience, how bad is the fashion industry today and have we learned nothing? I feel like we've been talking about this for years. Thank you, Julia. It's so lovely to be here with you today. We have been talking about it for years. I remember when we started first to address the um, environmental and social impact of fashion with EcoAge, it was 2010. And then in 2013, the Rana Plaza factory collapsed in Bangladesh, in Dhaka, killing more than 1,100 people, the majority women. And that was almost like the first time that the West uh, realized the repercussion of, of their um, purchasing habits on a vast majority of the population was producing the fashion brands. When we did um, the True Cost documentary, I remember an economist pointing out that um, there are, you know, commodities we use, like the washing machine or the fridge, and the commodities we use up, like food and toilet paper. And fashion used to be the commodities that, you know, that we used and have become commodities we use up. If you think about it with the advent of fast fashion in the last 30 years, mm. you know, today you can buy a T-shirt for the same price that you buy a sandwich. And how is that possible? Um, so the gigantic environmental impact of fashion has been caused by the exploitation of millions of people in supply chains globally. They feed the fast fashion cycle. And unfortunately, the majority of brands today are victims to that. And we, the so-called consumers, as they call us instead of citizen, are the biggest victims of it because we have been addicted. And we have been addicted to buying like we've been addicted to sugar. Yeah, I mean, it's a great example. You call it the take, make and dispose model. And we buy reams and reams of clothes, dispose of them because they're cheap and we don't care without thinking about the consequences. It's one way perhaps to tackle this. And I think that report's point about we're not even measuring sustainability in its truest form properly, but it's one way of doing this labeling, like food labeling. How honestly sustainable is this and what are the products and where did they come from? Is that one way of tackling this or is that short-sighted too? No, 100%. And if you think about it, labeling exactly what we miss. And there is, for example, today a push to make labeling mandatory for garments and fashion products at EU level and the EU Parliament has been discussing you know ways to do it but the forces the let's call them greenwashing forces are always very powerful and so currently for, for example there is a proposed legislation on PEF product environmental 
footprint that first of all only considers the environmental impact of it and then the scientific data that is used for it is completely flawed and so magically synthetic fibers appear to be much more environmentally friendly than natural fiber and so you start wondering well we need the labeling but we need to make it done right and we launched a campaign a month ago in brussels at the eu parliament called make the label count precisely for this yeah this is so important i mean this is just the start but it is at least headed in the direction of what we need you know for someone who's been and i know ecoage has been around for what a decade now and you've been fighting not just in the fashion industry but but more broadly um you wouldn't you weren't actually at cop 26 you said you'd be better served working on your farm and and protecting the land in some way that way do you think something has fundamentally changed. And what's your view on how many of us, what proportion of us actually need to decide to change things for a a real wave of change to begin? Are we there yet? Well, we're getting there. That's that's the good news. And um, mentioning COP, you know, yeah, I decided not to go um, because... You know, this year in August, when the IPCC released their first report um, um, on climate change, our heart and, uh, you know, hopes in the sustainability sphere completely sunk. Because as as the UN Secretary General put it, we are in code red for humanity. And, you know, we're talking about fashion. So we, we started saying, okay. How do you even, what is the dress code for a code red, as my friend Lucy Siegel puts it? So once you start considering that and knowing that, you know, a cop, I think that there were many inspiring speeches, many people that said beautiful things. You know, I was really taken by um, the Prime Minister of Barbados, who, you know, asked Mm. precisely the question that everyone was wondering, which is how many times do we have to come to this podium to say exactly the same thing? You know, when they, you know, we all come here, but we don't listen to each other. But what happened at COP that it was unprecedented, I think, is the coming together and and the mobilizing of the youth um, movement and the indigenous movement. And those voices and that energy at COP was felt incredibly powerful. This is one of the reasons, for example, talking about youth mobilizing, that this year we decided to part with the Green Carpet Fashion Awards for one year and instead create the Renaissance Awards, which is a beautiful movie, a 45 minutes movie, which is available on YouTube which showcases and rewards with an NFT award, by the way, which was the first... (laughs) Sustainable NFT award. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So each recipient received an NFT. Um, You know, we decided to celebrate these young leaders from all over the world that are working on sustainable solution because this sustainable solution exists. And so by... You know, looking at them and hearing their energy and looking at their examples, you know, we know that change is coming. And I read a fascinating article by George Monbiot in The Guardian a couple of days ago. He was quoting a a, a study that, um, you know, proved that by changing 25% of Mm. the population, by mobilizing 25% of, of the population, you reach a tipping point by which an irreversible shift happens. And you can only look at things like, you know, look at the Me Too movements a couple of, you know, a few years ago, how immediately, immediately made, you know, a certain kind of behavior completely unacceptable and changed completely the conversation around that. So yeah. this youth tide, you know, is incredibly energizing. And let's remember from a 
pure business point of view, these are the next consumers. So if businesses and governments don't pay attention to this, any business is, is dead in five yeah. years' time. You're going to get left behind. Livia, I know you have a whole action plan as well for coordinating governments, businesses, consumers as well. And we'll get you back on to talk about it because we've run out of time. But phenomenal to get your views today and um, hear what you're thinking and doing. Fingers crossed for the younger generation to uh, change the world. And to your point, we don't need everyone. We just need some. Livia Firth, great to have you with us. Founder and creative director of EcoAge. Thank you. Coming up here on First Move. Crypto investors pulled tens of millions of dollars to get a copy of the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, it didn't quite work out, but it was interesting nonetheless. We'll discuss. Stay with us. The aviation sector's biggest players attended the Dubai Air Show this week, and there's some cause for optimism with strong orders flooding in in today's Think Big. CNN's Kim Keeleter talks to some about the road to recovery. Big crowds, one of the greenest planes, and one of the largest wide-body aircrafts ever produced. It's fabulous to see record number of airplanes on display. It's no surprise that many are excited about the future of aviation here at the Dubai Air Show. From emerging technology and innovation to the eye-catching Boeing 777X, we're seeing it all here. But the buzzword this year is all about sustainability. Lufthansa, for instance, announced it has repaid its last pandemic loan to the German government. Now a reduction of emissions is issue number one. We have now 175 aircraft on order until the end of the decade because new aircraft are just the quickest way of reducing CO2 emissions. Itihad Airways calls its Boeing 787 the Green Liner. According to their chief executive, it can operate 72% more efficiently compared to two years ago. So how have they done it? More use of SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, and optimizing the flight plan for efficient routes with a more direct descent and landing. I would offer the view that in 10 years' time, in an air show like this, it will demonstrate who's been the winners and the losers. The winners will be the ones who've done the most on commercial aviation sustainability. The 777X is Boeing's new jumbo plane. It's the biggest twin-engine, large, wide-body airplane Boeing has produced. This is the first major air show this airplane has attended. The 777X is late to the show. The first few flights happened only months before the industry was hit by the pandemic and the demand for big-body planes dropped. In fact, these days, bigger is not necessarily better. The profitable trend now is smaller, fuel-efficient planes. After the pandemic, a lot of airplanes could not fly due to lack of demand. The Airbus A321 new engine option variant is a single-aisle aircraft. Its increased range means it can do longer flights with fewer passengers at cheaper costs. The popularity of this change is evident. The owners of Frontier and Wizz Airlines bought hundreds of these planes. So seeing a 250 plane order is a boost to the confidence to the industry. The industry has solved its first problem by getting back in the air. Now it's concentrating on solving its second problem by staying profitable and at the same time protecting the planet. Kim Kileda, CNN, Dubai.
This just in, you're looking at live pictures of the U.S. House floor where President Biden's Build Back Better stimulus plan has just passed. The $1.7 trillion proposal for a wide range of social spending programs now goes on to the Senate, where, of course, its future remains uncertain. And finally, on First Move, we're celebrating a very special milestone at CNN. 20 years ago today, Mary J. Blige was at the top of the music charts with Family Affair. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was riding high at the U.S. box office. Wow, was that 20 years ago? And here at CNN, we were witnessing a real-life bit of wizardry because on this day, November 19th, 2001, our very own Paula Monica joined the CNN business team. He made it through our sorting hat, and we're happy to say he's been with us ever since. Happy birthday, Paul. I won't sing because Thank it's you. sunny outside and I might make it rain. 20 years. Thank you. I think I'm more uh, Hufflepuff than uh, Slytherin, I hope. <laughs> it's CNN, though. Don't answer that. Don't, don't answer that. Does it, how does it, does it feel like 20 years? Does it feel like 40? Uh, so somewhere in between either. 20. Let's, <laughs> yeah. let's just say 30. Yes, yes. We'll, we'll split the difference. <laughs> well, we are very lucky to have you. I hope you're doing something nice to celebrate. And, um, Thank, Thank you, you for everything you do. And I was going to talk to you about crypto and the Constitution, but as always, breaking news, things change. We just wanted to thank you for all you do. And thank you for cool. being at CNN 20 years. And thank here's to the next much. 20. Maybe one day there will be an NFT for the Build Back Better and we'll have uh, crypto investors bidding you know, $50 million on that. Yeah. Something tells me probably not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Great to have you with us. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. And we'll see you on Monday. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.